0: When you sign up for something online, when you make a new account and you plug in your phone number, you'll almost always get a verification OTP. And this is a seemingly insignificant moment that all of us have experienced countless times, but have you ever stopped to think about how this actually works? What's going on behind the scenes to make this happen? Well, in today's podcast, we're gonna be hearing from the man whose company actually makes this possible, Venkibala Subramanian. Because back in 2011, he turned his open source GitHub project into a multi-million dollar profitable SaaS star Startup called Plevo Most of us, unknowingly, have interacted with Plevo and its services multiple times. For example, if you're a Zomato or Baiju's customer, then guess what? The messages and phone call notifications that you receive from these companies are powered by Plevo. And today, this is a company generating between 50 and $100 million in revenue every single year, but when Venki Bala Subramanian started the company back in 2011, it was just an open-source GitHub project. By the time he founded Plevo, Venki was already a three-time entrepreneur. He started his first first venture ES4I in Noida when he was in the 10th standard and was able to grow this into a profitable business which generated 6 lakh rupees in revenue and 6 lakh rupees is a huge amount of money for a student today but this was all the way back in 1999. following this in his final year of college he and a small team built a humanoid robot called amiibo this technology though was way ahead of its time and Venki soon realized that there wasn't really any market for humanoid robots in India and so he pivoted the business into hardware development for college students and was able to generate 25 lakh rupees in profit between 2004 and 2005. His third business, Hunger Break, was similarly ahead of its time. It was a cloud kitchen startup for Momos in Andhabad, and this was way before Rebel Foods and Box 8 found success in the cloud kitchen space. This was in 2008, right around the time that Dipinder Goyal had tried and failed to get Zomato's first iteration, Foodlit, off the ground. To build Hunger Break, Venki took credit card loans worth 35 lakh rupees and was actually able to turn the business profitable but eventually realized that the operational logistics of the business just weren't his cup of tea and so he shut the venture down he got a job working at huawei as a lead solutions architect but just couldn't shake the startup bitch and so in 2011 he started a hobby project a communications framework that made it easier for web developers to build voice-based applications that interacted with phone callers. And he wasn't alone here. He'd met his co-founder, Michael Ricardo, on GitHub back in March of 2011. Together, they spent the next six months building Plevo up into one of the most well-known open-source telephony app development frameworks on the platform. But here's the thing. Michael was in France, and this was not 2023 where we have tons of amazing communication tools like Zoom, Google Meet, WhatsApp, and Slack. This was 2000. 2011. And so, Venki and Michael had to get a bit more creative to enable their overseas co founder communications.
1: It was, it was completely remote. Back in the day, it was a combination of Skype. We did use a bit of Skype, but mostly GTalk, if you remember GTalk, right? And it was like embedded into Gmail. Uh, and there was actually an app, if I remember correctly. Uh, there was an app, which was a Windows desktop app. Back in the day, we were. Windows users, but but essentially that's what we used. It was a lot of chat, uh, Discord or Slack wasn't a thing, so we would be like you know old school IRC, chat uh, for for group communication. So that was how we started out. What's interesting is we almost worked for uh, together for like eight or nine months, and and we met after nine months in person the first time. Right. So it tell was. Me,
0: tell me that story because that was in Chicago, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So this was in August two thousand eleven. Uh, we were working remotely for eight nine months building this project. It, it got a lot of coverage, media coverage, and and was picked up online. And we were invited to speak at an open source conference, which which was a good mix of you know folks from the telecom background, and then also from uh, the web side of things. Right. So this is where we met the first time. We were speakers on the at the conference, and it was a little uh, you know I was I was anxious. I'm sure he was too, Mike too, because we were meeting for the first time. And we had this notion of how we would be, like the persona, if you will, right? So, you know, we were checked in into our rooms. We both came down and, you know, we were like, oh, I'm in the lobby. So it was like, (laughs) it was almost like dating each other. Yeah, I was going
0: to say it's like a first date. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
1: It was almost like that. And then when we met each other, we were like, oh, like he's just another normal guy, right? So (laughs) that was what it was. I think it was instant connect, instant bond. We obviously you know, thought similarly when we worked on, even remotely for an year. So yeah, that was that was fun time.
0: And you guys got up on stage, did sort of a little presentation on what you had been working on. And then what? I mean, what actually, because I think there were some important things that happened at that event, for right. example, meeting your first customer, also deciding that you would go ahead and turn this into a proper business. So yeah. tell me what happened after you guys got off, off stage.
1: I think that's a good segue. So so I think, you know, sort of The first, I mean, the the obvious thought was like we need to present. So how do we make it cool, right? And the good thing about or the interesting thing about our project was it's very relatable to anyone because as a consumer, you're using those services. So we just, you know, showed a cool demo of how it would look like. So your typical, you know, contact center when you call them, right, or call center when you call them, like one for sales, two for support and so on and so forth. Like we just thought creatively, it basically, like, you could call in, you could see your live status on, on how many, like, what's your, queue, like, how many more people are ahead of you, waiting for you. And then, basically, it, it would give you a message saying, you can hang up, we'll call you back, you know, when we're ready to talk to you. Wait, these things weren't, like, common Th- this back This was then? not, no, this was not common back in 2011, right? Like, so we built that, and it was just, I, I, if I remember correctly, about 10 lines of code, right? right? So doing that in 10 lines of code was mind-blowing. And both Mike and I come from a telecom background, you know, companies who would implement something similar, it was not that easy, but if they were to implement something similar, they would have to spend millions of dollars, right? So that's what we felt we were sort of democratizing, right? And bringing it to the web audiences. So we showed that demo, everybody loved it, on the stage, right? And then what happened was, there were a few folks in the audience who came up, walked up to us after we were done. They basically said, this is pretty cool. We love the flexibility of this framework, which is open source we are actually already use a service which is on the cloud. And we'd be paying customers. Uh, they don't have a few features set of what you've built right now in open source. If you put this on the cloud for me, we'd be paying customers. And we were like, why do you want us to put this on the cloud? Like, why do you not want to do this yourself? And that's when we realized, and, and this is where AWS, now obviously AWS is a thing pretty common, but the cloud hosting scenario was gro- growing as well. So we realized there are three problems we're solving here right now. One is obviously the technology, which was open source. The second is the hosting and the scaling of it, which is the cloud piece of it. People didn't want to do that on their own because scaling on the cloud is hard. We've seen that of how successful AWS is, Azure is, and Google Cloud is. And the third is connecting all the telcos across the globe on the platform as well, which is the another reason why cloud's important, right? Nobody wants to go sign up their you know, telco contracts, whether it's, you know, Tata in India or at t in the U.S. and so on and so forth. So they wanted us to do yeah. all those three pieces. They of just them. wanted
0: someone that they could pay to do all those, yeah. all the dirty work, basically.
1: But with the feature flexibility of what we'd build on the open source side, right? So, so, they, so they became sort of our, you know, test customers, if you will.
0: So you had these very important, meaningful conversations with prospective customers. And then what? I think you and michael must have like spent the rest of the evening talking about yeah. like hey we've been going in this one direction with open source but yeah. Yeah. after these conversations it feels like maybe this is a sign that we should be going in a different direction right
1: yeah i think it was it was a hard hard time like the next 3 weeks this was i think mid august is when the conference happened and then the next 3 weeks was you know thought process time for us that evening obviously you know we we went out you know started thinking about it so we were you know with with a couple of drinks around us the thought process was: How do we sort of, you know, take a decision on do we do keep doing this as you know a couple of developers? We could still be profitable, make our money on the side with you know helping companies, uh, you know, build this entire infrastructure. The second thing was: Do we do we want to run a business and take this more, you know, for profit sort of a sort of a mode, right? And obviously that would need a lot of commitment and a different decision making.
0: And you you had already done business in the past, right? I think this was basically your fourth startup. Yep. yep. Um so you knew what it was like and you yep. knew how difficult starting up and running a business was.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And 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 which is where uh, you know, the thought process was do we want to fully commit to this, right? So we spent a lot of time, you know, like I said, a couple of drinks down. Our thought process was, Do we go jump in? Right. And we said we were all 50, 60% there, not completely in there. Mike went back to France. I decided to go to the Bay Area from Chicago. And essentially, when I went there, the whole thought process was, you know, how do I get more validation from talking to more folks? So the obvious thought process was, you know, go talk to uh, more prospective customers and, and spend time with them. So we did spend time with them and, and did a lot of that. I think what really pushed the, the envelope in terms of like taking that decision was, one of my friends was going through YC, Y Combinator, and he basically, you know, would talk about his stories and I wanted to experience that live and see how that would be. So I just sort of, you know, crashed at his place for, I think, a week or so. I think that pushed the 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 needle through in terms of taking that decision. We just signed up for it. We said, let's go get this done. And we registered our company September 6th, 2011.
0: Oh, Wow. And then you went ahead and actually applied to get into YC. So, and it, it didn't really go, I think it didn't really go as, as planned. So tell me about uh, trying to get into YC, not, uh, not succeeding, at least not the first time.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually spoke to a few more alumni in YC after that, after, you know, we, we decided to start the company. Our thought process was, this is going to be easy. Let's apply to YC. We're just going to get accepted because, you know, we understand how YC works and we're signing up for that and, you know, we'll go through it. We actually applied to YC. We got rejected the first time. Uh, this is in October 2011 sort of timeframe. And it was obviously disappointing uh, to get rejected. And then, you know, I, I emailed Paul Graham. He's one of the founders of YC. This is back in the day where he was he was actually like hands-on and part of each batch and he would spend significant amount of time with each batch. He replied back, uh, you know, within a few hours. And and so I asked him why were we rejected. And he replied back saying two reasons. One, we don't fund companies with remote founders, and you guys have only met once. So we don't know if you can make it work. Because a lot of companies we see that don't make it are because of founder issues. And the second reason he said was, You guys were open source. Now you're saying you go you're gonna go sell to enterprise or or corporates or you know, larger companies, you don't have any record of doing that. We want to see that work. If you guys are able to make both of these work, let's talk six months from now in the next batch, reapply and and, and we'll consider, reconsider, right? So we were like, okay. So we got back to work. We had our first prospective customer we found in, in Chicago. We reached out back to them. They said, here are the five things we need you to build apart from your open source on the cloud. We'll pay. We just build those five things. We had them as paying customers. Coincidentally, we didn't realize there would be a lo- such a large customer. We didn't. Re- uh, so once they started ramping up, you know their their voice traffic on the platform, revenue suddenly grew quite aggressively, and then this is somewhere around October 2011. You know, I then decided to sort of come back to India, spend some time here, and there were uh, a few early seed firms in India and we raised our seed round uh, from India. We realized, you know, platform business requires a bit of capital, uh, but we didn't want too much capital, right? Like we just wanted enough to sort of hire our initial set of folks. So we got our angel, initial angel funding from, uh, you know, today 197, which is Paytm popular and known as Paytm today. So Vijay invested personally, and then I think, uh, you know, he brought 197 in. And then we had seeders uh, from, from back in the day as well, you know, who were, who were part of that. And then, India had its own version of YC, it was called Morpheus, so they also, uh, you know, invested. So that, you know, got us us sort of running up in in the initial days. So we didn't have to worry about, you know, getting customer revenue and, and then hiring. We had some, you know, flexibility there. So we then went on to sort of hire our first three engineers. Everyone was a developer, everyone was a support engineer, everyone was pretty much doing everything. We designed our logo ourselves and all of that stuff, right? basically getting our hands dirty. So that's how the f- next four or five months were. Then we move into 2012. You know, Febu- I think February 2012, we got our second customer. Uh, again, large volume. So so there was a weird pattern around us getting our initial customers. Most of the customers who, who, who found out about us, we were not doing any sales, no marketing, nothing. They just found out about us through our open source project. So that was our lead funnel channel, right? That's how they found out. Again, of significantly large volume customer. so you kept
0: the open source project going on the side.
1: Yeah, it was, it was, right? Like, so the project was on the side, we would contribute to it. Uh, And then at some point we had to take a decision uh, whether we want to continue that, do both, or just do the commercial one. Uh, But at that point, this is early 2012, it was still on the side. We would get the lead flow in. And then we signed up more customers. I think we had like three or four customers by then. A significant amount of revenue, I'd say, Upwards of 100K a month, so more than a million dollars in revenue, right? So we were already zero to one by then. Uh, this is March now in 2012. We reapplied to YC. And specifically when I reapplied, I made sure I pointed out those two things, why we got rejected and how we have made progress on those two things.
0: Well, you'd made progress on the revenue part slash customer part. But I think what I'm hearing here is that you have a U.S.-based company. Yeah one of the founders is in India yeah. and one of the founders is still in France, France at that yeah, point?
1: Yeah, he was still in France.
0: So that part hadn't really been worked out. That's true. But, but you would be coming back together to be in the Bay Area in, during in Bay Area. YC.
1: That's, yes, but but I think one of the concerns of being remote was like, you know, have can you guys make it work with each other? So there was progress there, right? We showed them how we can work together and, and show progress in spite of like moving from an open source project to a real business. Right, so that obviously helped uh so yeah I think uh, and and then and then we applied we got selected for the interview they wanted to see our you know styles together in person uh, for an in-person interview and and how we work together so we went for the interview I still remember uh you know Paul Buhite, um, who's the founder of gmail uh, and Gary tan interviewed us and that's how YC interviews used to be so they would split the partners would split the interviews and be a part of Gary Tan and 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 uh, PB, that's how he's called, right? They interviewed us, and Gary is the CEO of YC today, so it goes quite a back, uh, quite a while back in terms of how the whole thing has grown. So, so that happened. We got selected, um, and the selection is is a thing in itself, right? Uh, we, so our interviews happened in the morning. We, you know, we're told to wait. They usually call people at like four thirty five, so we went to like a bar near, near the YC, uh, piece of it. And we were sitting inside, you know, just generally chit chatting, if that's the right word. Right. I I get a call on my phone at four 30 and they're like, uh, we're calling from YC. Uh, we, we've selected you. Uh, do you want to accept? You have to tell us now. And I'm like, okay, let me think about it. <laughs> <laughs> let me what think. yeah <laughs> let, let, let me think about it and why, why need, would you say that <laughs> I, I need to talk to my co-founder and let you let, get back to you and I don't think they were expecting that right because I think most companies just take it because the selection criteria was pretty tough back in the day I think it's still tough but but our batch was only 84 85 companies now it's like 500. so you can see the, how it's grown over time so, yeah so that happened my co-founder freaked out when I told him this but luckily i got a call back in 10 minutes and and we were accepted and we moved on.
0: Wow. One thing that's really interesting about that particular batch in yc and i think just those early days 2012 was a completely different world. You guys were one of the first international companies. I mean, yeah. you are registered in the United States, but yeah. you as founders yeah. were some of the first people that were in yc as sort of an international business. Right. And some of your cohort members, by the way, were Boosted Board, Soylent, Coinbase, uh, Zapier, 9gag. Yeah. Um, I, I looked through the list and there's a couple of names that I, I think they're no more as companies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In fact, probably most of them. Sure. Um, what was that like being being sort of foreigners in this group of largely American founders?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was interesting um, and, and and it was like a three, four month journey and we knew nothing about you know, how this whole program works. I'd seen some some of this stuff beforehand when my friend was going through it. We were one of the earlier, I wouldn't call it, like while I was in India, like I said, Mike, like you said, Mike was in France. We were registered in the US. So it was an international company for all practical purposes. And I don't think YC had accepted too many of such companies before. I think we were the only remote founders who came together after that time. There was one more company before us, I think Hackerank, uh, which was an Indian company. But but I don't think there were any any others before. Right. So so that's how it started out. And when we when we went in there, we were like, are we in the right place? Cause this looks like, you know, everybody's gonna kill it. And are we gonna be able to make it? Right. That was the first thought when we saw all these folks. But then I think as we started doing more of these office hours and started seeing progress and all of that then we started getting more and more confident because we had the revenue to back it up. And a lot of these companies were much more earlier stage.
0: Had many pre-revenue companies been accepted into that batch?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right. Like, so I still remember Zapier and Coinbase. I think they're like, you know, the, the, the larger set of companies from back in the day, if you, if you look at them today, like they're clearly larger brands. Right. So back in the day, they were still like very early stage. Right. I still remember Coinbase, Brian sort of ideating a lot of his ideas and drawing things out and, and and I mean, th- there is an interesting story. He actually would give us bitcoins. He was giving everybody bitcoins in the in in our batch and said like, I'd give you bitcoins if you signed up. I think it was ten bitcoins or something. If you signed up for for my app, and we were like, who has the time for bitcoins? So yeah, I don't have those ten bitcoins from what he was giving away back in the day, right? So that's that's I should have <laughs> signed up, but whatever. I'm a Coinbase customer now, but but th- that's that's what happened then. So so the format was was interesting. You had like very sharp, you know, founders, mostly, most of them were, you know, MIT, Harvard, Stanford sort of founders. And, and you know, Mike and I both would look at all of that and be like, you, you know, we need to sort of, and, and both of us are very competitive. So we need to beat them. What does it take to beat them? Right. So that's when I think we learned our lesson in life that there is this notion of, you know, people thinking hard work versus smart work. We realized you have to do both. You cannot just cherry pick one of these. It cannot just be smart work or hard work. You have to do both. We would work like, you know, 20, 22 hours a day, right? And two hours is what we would nap. It helped that we wouldn't step out of our, you know, home offices. So it's just like get up, start working, and then take your two-hour nap. That's how we would work. And that's our, we thought that was our only recipe to sort of be able to beat folks who from like their educational backgrounds were much more smarter than from where we came from.
0: Well, it th- it seems like that outlook actually did work wonders for you guys because you ended that batch, at least in terms of revenue, I think you were like top two or yeah. top three company up there, yeah. right? With, yeah. uh, in terms of how you were able to get customers and, yeah. and grow your business within those three to four months at YC. I mean, how did that feel? You must've been pretty like satisfying to see all these MIT and Stanford folks yeah. and you're like, oh, well, we're making pretty good money here compared to them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we we actually doubled our revenue by end of end of YC. So it was like five months, right? Uh, I mean, although numbers may seem small, but like going from a million dollars in annualized revenue to two million is not was not a joke for in six months, right? So so we did. Yes, absolutely. We were in the top three, four companies in our batch, and that's when at the end of it, uh, you know, we got covered in, in TechCrunch, and there was another website. I think VentureBeat, it still exists today, but not so mainstream. They picked us up. And and they spoke about it, uh, and and they also pivot, you know pitched our us versus our competitor uh, back in the day. So so that happened, and then we were debating as founders, do we want to go raise money? Because that's like there's a demo day at the end of YC. We were getting a lot of incoming interest from VCs post that. And you had already raised that, that Seed pre-, pre, pre Seed yeah. round, yeah. That was only 250K. 250K, right. Yeah,
0: but yeah. it sort of set you down that path in a way, right? Those investors like Vijay or Sharma with 197 and all, they would have wanted to at some point see a return, right? So you're kind of already on that. You weren't bootstrapped.
1: Yeah, we were not. We call ourselves pseudo-bootstrapped, Yeah. right? Uh, we were not bootstrapped. But we were still thinking, do we want to go raise more? The th- One of the thought processes, like when we were trying to sell to companies, like larger companies back in the day during YC, one of the questions was, you know, how much money have you raised? And we would wonder why that question came up. Because we were in the platform as a service business, and companies need to be able to trust that we have enough, you know, stability, uptime, all of that stuff. And we've invested in the business enough. So raising that money from marquee investors was important. So we could have decided, so then we decided, yes, let's raise some money, like under a you know, a couple of million. Actually, we want to raise close to a million. But then we were getting a lot of incoming interest. Then the next question or decision to make was, do we raise it from angels or do we raise it from institutional investors? We said, let's go with int- institutional because it would get us the brand names to be able to be credible because both of us were, you know, immigrant founders in the in, in, in the States and that would help us build our brand.
0: Oh, yeah. It, I think it really helps when you're on that call with a prospective customer and you say, oh, yeah, and by the way, yeah. we have investors like, you know, YC, A16Z, Qualcomm ventures battery ventures and and they're like oh I've heard of at least one of those firms sign me up
1: yeah absolutely I think we our initial set of customers the moment we announce our fundraise we would see our customer numbers go up dramatically right because suddenly there was a lot of trust factor that was built that they've raised money they're a company who's going to invest in the future on the technology platform I'm not going to be left hanging
0: I would imagine after raising that it was 1.5 million dollars right for right. that seed round right or sorry Pre Series A, what what did you call it?
1: It was, yeah. I mean, I was seed also it was also a seed round, <laughs> right? Like it was. Now it's. I think it's called Pre Series A. Yeah, but back in that, it was still seed.
0: So you've so you've raised these funds, and now you're getting all these you know inbound customers who are excited. They've read about you on TechCrunch or some other publication, and they want to be a part of what you're building. Was that was that money enough to sort of grow the company and and keep up with all of this demand or Were you guys still kind of, because you had like what, how many clients did you have at that point before you raised that $1.5 million? Before
1: was about, I think before YC was about four. And then by end of YC, we had about 15. (laughs) Right? Yeah. And, and, um,
0: that's like more than, yeah, 3X growth. And revenue
1: wise, we doubled, right? And, and customer numbers wise, we 3X'd. And then after YC, when we announced the fundraise, we saw an influx of a lot, many more customers. Like I was literally the sales guy. Right? So I had, I mean, we were using our own product. So we had a number, toll-free number on the website. Somebody calls them. I was answering it. Sometimes, like, and we were in the Bay Area, so sometimes we'd get calls from, like, East Coast. And, like, it's still 7 in the morning here. And I'd just gone to bed, you know, 5 in the morning. And it was 10 there. So I'd, I'd like, wake up and answer the call. And, and yeah, they'd be like, am I talking to the right person? Who are you in the, in the company? So I'd have to change names so it doesn't seem like... <laughs> we don't have a sales team to be able to take those calls. You went from
0: YC doing 20 to 22 hour days and then thinking, okay, after YC, we can kind of yeah. take a break, right? But yeah. it seems like it got even harder. Like you yeah, were actually yeah. working even harder than you than you were while you are at YC. Yeah,
1: it was crazy. Uh, so one thing I did, I think that led to that was at the FAG and of YC, we launched in 50 countries, right? Like we'd actually started providing phone numbers in 50 countries So that, I think, also skyrocketed that demand. Uh, We actually outbeat our competitor who'd been in business for three years. They did not have that offering, right? So we launched that. I think that led to some of that. I think your question earlier was, did raising that money help? Uh, Raising that money definitely helped, but I don't think we could hire fast enough. So we still had a very lean team. We were still like five, seven folks trying to do everything. And that is, I think, a lot of challenges came in. So suddenly, our usage on the platform skyrocketed. But we hadn't sort of, you know, invested from a a people perspective to be able to, like, build all of that stuff in the right manner, right? It's mostly like, okay, let's just push this out. Let's make this work. We'll figure out optimizations later. That's what we did. And obviously, then what we started realizing is, and this is just six months in, Things were start blowing up, right? And usually, um, I'm I'm, I'm sure you've seen the 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 trough of sorrow sorrow graph, right? Usually, it's the tech crunch initiation and goes down. For us, after that, the numbers keep kept going up. So it was we should have been happy, but it was still sorrow because things were breaking up and things were blowing up, you know, on an everyday basis, right? So either there were bugs, or and we I remember, you know, there was one customer we launched a, a. conferencing sort of a service right like so it was an api where you could build a clubhouse in three lines of code back in the day right nobody was using it for that use case but it was still critical for people to build you know voice use cases where there were multiple people on the call and you know there were delays on people joining that call and so on and so forth i think recently twitter had some of that on their twitter spaces when i think when when they had a political campaign getting started on twitter you know, Twitter spaces, right? So so that's exactly what happened with us. Like right? the server would start blowing up in terms of, uh, you know, when we had volume go up and, and, and stuff. So we were just day in, day out firefighting. And that's when we realized we need to pause building newer features and make sure we keep our current customers happy. So the next two years, pretty much, because we were the core platform, right? So the next two years was putting our heads down, you know, not launching a lot of new features, focusing on what we've already built, make sure sure that's hardened and customers were happier And, and we just, you know, split our responsibilities. I completely got out of tech. Mike led the team and just went deep into it. I was spending a lot more time with customers. We hired our customer facing layer. More than sales, it was like a couple of people who could talk to customers so that when there is a firefight, I'm not the first layer handling that, right? So that I could come in as an escalation and take care of that. So we did a lot of hacks to just make sure everything works. But uh, yeah, the next two years was like a sine wave, right? The the highs were higher because the, the revenue was growing, but the lows were lower because customer would be like, look, you've let me down. I'm going to leave. And we were like, we don't want to lose a customer. So those were, you know, interesting two years.
0: Yeah. Sounds like it was a real challenge. In terms of financials, how are you guys doing there? Were you profitable? And if so, like, uh, how big was the team as well? Like, did you did you stay lean? Or did you start to hire more people during that time period? Those crazy two years? I mean, how are things going at the company?
1: Yeah, we were forced to hire, right? Uh, We both of us come from like our family backgrounds and stuff where we think very frugally. So it was all about like, let's not spend the VC money. Let's make sure we have enough revenue before we hire. That's how we both thought. But we were forced to hire like we couldn't have done or or focused in that manner. So we just hire a much larger team. With that came its own set of challenges. We did not hire leaders. It was very flat hierarchy. And then we realized who's going to manage all of these people, right? So we went to almost 25 people in a span of nine months from like five. And that, like I said, brought its own set of challenges. And then we had to just sort of iterate in, 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 figuring out what works. And
0: Michael at that time was managing all 25 yeah. of those people essentially. Yeah, yeah. And he wasn't
1: in India. We hired all these people in India. Oh, right. He was, okay. Right. So he was, he was in the States. I was in the States. Um, uh, and we were, we were building, we built the team out there and then, you know, things would just, I mean, how does that work? Yeah, it was hard. It was hard. Uh, what we realized then is like not hire junior people initially hire. And, and we, this is where I think, uh, this was our forming, of the company where a lot of our values were formed i think a lot of people think about values as putting them on the slides and forgetting about them this is where we realized realized like what works for us as founders and what kind of hires don't work right so you know ownership as an example is one of our key values right so so like we realize if we hire people we have to hire people who you know take ownership and get things done and that came with a little bit of seniority and and like understanding why you're doing this and how critical this is. So yeah, I think uh, we we learned, we made a ton of mistakes. I mean, if I st- go through all the, the list, we wouldn't end today. But essentially that was like a bunch of mistakes we made. We learned. Our only rule was don't make the same mistake again, right? It's okay if we keep repeating, like if we figure out different set of mistakes, but let's not make the same mistake again. So that's that's how the whole process was. Mike actually started working uh, a lot of night shifts from the US uh, to be able to make, spend more time with the India team and then the India team obviously accommodated to work later nights as well to 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 be around when the US team is around.
0: I find it interesting though that M- Michael is the one who's managing the India team rather than you who's sure. the Indian yeah. uh, co-founder, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. yeah, but like he's, I mean, from a, from a tech chops perspective he's much more technical than me so and it just made sense for for us to split duties that way he hates sales right uh, or, or anything to do with go to market side marketing or whatever so i was taking care of all of that right and and it was just logical that he's focused on the tech
0: sure when did you guys switch or when did you expand rather to sms because it seems like for the longest time it was just focusing on voice calling features and functionality right when did you guys move into the to the sms space
1: yeah, that's an interesting, you know, piece of of our journey as well. So year, year and a half, I think year, year and a half, as we when we started building that out, we had you know loyal voice customers who were growing. On pretty much every call, they would bring up and say, "Look, we like your APIs, we love your APIs. We're using other services for SMS globally. It'd be good if we can just use one platform for both, right?" And we 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 just keep putting it away. I mean, even today we get this question, right? When is some X channel eating? SMS away. And we were back in the day, coming from telecom, always thought SMS is going to die. Why build SMS, right? Like voice is where all the technology is. So we kept pushing the SMS decision for almost a year year and a half. And then we realized, look, we have to do this. Otherwise, you know, we're not going to be able to grow the customer over over time. So yeah, we just, you know, went back to startup mode. In four weeks, we rolled out our initial API set uh, for SMS. Initially it was US. In the next month, in the first month, it was U.S. In the next month, we rolled it out for international. It didn't have, I think, 80% of the feature set, bells and features of of, of bells and whistles of whatever we needed, just basic set of whatever the customer asked. We qualified that pretty well. We launched that out. In the first 30 days of us launching it, we got additional $100,000 of revenue, right? So annualized million dollars. And that's when we knew, right, like we've taken the right decision. And, and today, SMS is our largest revenue product, right? And it's obviously grown. So And we don't see it slowing down anyways, right? So it still remains a, a, a strong channel. Obviously, I think uh, there are more channels now versus back in the day, but it continues to grow at, at a fast pace, right? So so that's what happened. And that's where we sort of came to internalize our number one value in the company, right? I spoke about ownership as one of our values, our number one value in the company, which is customer obsession, right? With, and and we. Deep rooted that early in the day. And that's when, you know, Mike also started taking a lot of calls with customers. The good thing about our customers was our persona we sell to our technical audiences. So it's mostly a CTO or a, you know, product leader, engineering leader on the other side, and they love talking to Mike. Right. So, uh, so he started taking those calls with them and, and initially like he pretty much talked to every customer as well on the other side. Uh, so that worked really well. We built that respect. So we didn't have any of the customer success teams or sales teams or, or what have you, but they loved talking to us, you know, both me on the business side and him on the tech side. I'm trying to
0: understand here, um, so far we've talked about your customers. We've talked about sort of the the end customer of the business that you're working with, right? The person who picks up the call or gets the SMS. But I think there's a there's another party here that we haven't really touched on, which is the telecommunications companies that you also have to involve in this process, right? Because you're sort of building on top yeah, of the yeah. infrastructure that they've created. Um, and I'm I'm guessing they're not just letting you do this for free, right? You actually have to pay them. So how did that all work?
1: Sure. Yeah. That's that, there. There are a couple of interesting stories there. But but just to give you a quick. Insight into how the business works. Obviously, yes, we partner with telcos in country locally, and that's part of our moat we have built over the last twelve years. It takes a ton of time to onboard one carrier locally. You know, there is regulatory compliances, interconnection, blah blah, what have you. So it's not like any startup can come online tomorrow and start competing with us, right? We have over hundred direct relationships with telcos, actually more than hundred, in uh, globally across across the world, right? So, so that's what what we've built over the last. Uh, you know, twelve years, right? And and so so think think us being that cloud layer of telcos without having to worry about that. Just like how AWS is the cloud data center, right? So so yes, we do have to pay our telcos for you know every call we make or receive and every SMS we make or receive from their platform, right? Respective carriers. And that's where actually you know um, and and yeah, near death phenomenon happened for Plevo. This is still early days, right? 2013 and 2014. I think mid-2014, mid actually, and starting 2014 or, or mid-2014. Each month, we would sort of, you know, be paying our telcos on the usage. We had customers ramping up. I made the mistake of putting a lot of those customers on postpaid, because customers would ask for it, and these were great brand names,
0: and they feel comfortable with that, right? Yeah,
1: so we would just put them on postpaid, and we'd we'd be like, uh, you yeah, know, yeah, they're a good brand; they're going to pay, right? And uh, it was my responsibility to take care of the finances and cash flow, and I I, I would just focused on growing the company and 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 took my eyes away from it. And what we realized one fine day was, suddenly something was wrong with our cash flow process. Right? We were getting our cash from customers much later because of, you know, 60, 90-day payment terms and we had to pay our carriers every 15 days even in some countries, right? So, so, and as, the more we grew, the more we had a cash flow problem and suddenly we realized there was only three or four months of cash flow in the bank. So if anyone defaulted, like any customer defaulted or delayed the payments, we'd be in trouble. So it was like wartime. We set a goal for ourselves in the next three months and said, how do we sort of turn this around, right? Like, so, I mean, few few obvious goals. One is to renegotiate with our carriers. We got out like you know three to six month payment terms for a short time, short time, right? Uh, and then we I went back to customers, started whichever customer was fine, we moved them to credit cards. We actually gave them some incentives for it, right? Uh, you know, like premium support and 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 stuff like that, right? So most customers signed up for that. Some of them did not. They're still on postpay today, which is fine. That helped a lot. But this was a situation where, like, if we did not do this, we'd have to shut down because we'd run out of money, right? So there was a third option we had, which was to just go fundraise, but it was not enough time to raise money in, in two months, right? So so we didn't want to go that path, right? So we just did both of these things. And our whole thought process was how do we, you know, sort of, uh, you know, execute on a tightrope. So, again, you know, Mike said, look, I'm going to take care of even support uh, apart from the tech, you go fix this. And that's how we split responsibilities. And uh, yeah, I was neck deep into all of this. It took us three months, we turned this around and it, it felt refreshing, but it was a near death moment we still talk about.
0: Something else that happened, and this is actually even before you guys started, this is where this begins, 2009, there's this little known company um, that becomes like the largest messaging platform in the world. Um, and I think around 20, it would have been like, what, 2014, 2015? Yeah, yeah, When did they become a customer of yours?
1: 2013, early 2014.
0: 2014. Yeah,
1: just around the same time frame. Okay. Right, and and yeah, it's it's sort of connected. So, I mean, they were part of them leading to this as well, right? So what happened is, I mean, our platform, just to sort of get into, in a bit of detail there, is essentially, you can just sign up. You can go to our website, plevo.com, sign up for an account, put your card in, you know, spend $25.00. And start using the platform. It's it's that that easy.
0: They don't need to get permission. They don't need to talk to anybody at the company. They just pay you and they start.
1: Yeah, and it, like I said, as as low as twenty five dollars get started. Right, so that's how we've always built this from day one. So now what this led to is we've obviously had a long tail of customers who are spending you know fifty, hundred, two hundred dollars a month, and we wouldn't spend too much time on them just to ensure, you know, we spend our time on customers who had more usage and volume. So yeah, I mean there was this brand like you said, a messaging company. Uh, uh, it's it's a global messaging company, the, the top brand at that, and you can take a guess of what that is.
0: The way uh, that people communicate in India, essentially, in many countries around the world. Yeah, India,
1: Brazil, Mexico, I think those are their largest countries. But essentially, they signed up. We thought, I mean, we actually didn't pay attention first. It was like, I think, month two or month three, where we suddenly see a spike. They went up from like, I mean, I see this graph go up from like $200 in the previous month, to 10,000 and this is like early in the morning, I wake up and I'm calling Mike and freaking out, right? Like what's going on here? Like, is there something wrong in our reporting or is there fraud happening on our platform or does the customer even know what's going on? So we investigated, we, we dug deep, we saw this brand and we were not sure. Like we were like, okay, if this was a brand this large, they would talk to us first. Why, how would they be spending so much money on the credit card, right? So we actually thought this is fraud. Like they were doing this unintentionally. Something may have gone wrong. So we shut them down, <laughs> right? Uh, and and then we started getting hammered by emails on their side, right, in a few hours because their service was down, uh, you know, from our side, right? So so when you install this app, they use us for the voice o- o- OTP part to verify their phone numbers or users on, on the platform, right? So So imagine that getting shut down. Right. And, and yeah, this was even before they got acquired. Right. So, so that's, that's what happened. And um, yeah. And, and then we got on a call, a call with them. And then in just few hours, we realized like we had them as our customer and it was game time. But so it was all, so it's, it was ironic, right? Like we were getting these customers and that's also what led to some of this cash flow problem because that was not in check. We quickly moved them to Postpaid also, right? Uh, To solve the credit card problem. And like I said, over time, this led to some of that cash flow issue. But but yeah, this happened at the same time, almost you know, early to mid-2014.
0: Okay. Now, you did end up solving that cash flow problem. Um, and I guess ironing out most of the big issues that you had been facing in the early days of the company to the point where in 2017, I guess you started looking at, hey, maybe it's time to raise some more money. What was the thought process there? I mean, you had already started on this journey, right? Raising those two seed rounds. so normally the path that a company will take um, is you raise ne- another round, right? You would have raised a series A. But you guys chose not to go down that path. So tell me a little bit more about uh, 2017.
1: Yeah, that, so 2014 w- and to 2017 was was just put your heads down and build a solid, fundamentally strong business, which is also boring. So not too much happened from, you know, sort of different events between that time. So we were just heads down, growing the business, doing what's working, and making sure we do make less of the mistakes we've made in the past, right? That was pretty much 2014 to 2017.
0: Were you guys profitable at that time?
1: Uh, Not profitable, but not burning a lot of cash. Yeah, not burning a lot of cash, right? So, yeah, I mean, at various points, we uh, uh, we would speak about whether we want to go raise money. We were like, if you can just push through. As much as possible, the valuations at some point would be much larger, right? So why raise right now? Let's focus on growing the revenue and we were growing pretty well from a revenue perspective, so we could do a larger raise at some point. And you know come 2017, early early 2017, you know we were banking with SVB now obviously SVB is in the news for all the wrong reasons. We are banking with SVB, our banker reach out, reached out they had seen our revenue position grow, uh, cash in the bank the way it was and and revenues grow because because they would see you know inflow of cash so they reached out and said uh, you know are you guys planning to fundraise we said yeah maybe we plan to fundraise at a later point so they said what if we give you a bridge debt round right uh, and so that would allow you to go further you could grow your revenues and when you go fundraise their valuation is going to be much nicer and you don't have to dilute your equity stake right now that obviously was exciting we were also looking at all our all of our peers both in the states in in India raising so much money and you sort of get that pull to say okay let's go raise that money we raised a debt round the terms were pretty pretty easy like in, in within 30 days we get got everything done right so yeah that was it was almost like a fundraise right um, we raised about eight million dollars uh, I think for most companies at that point it's like a series A sort of a raise. And we start trading it like that. And I, I think I think this is one thing to sort of uh, nuance. Debt raise is not the same as a VC fundraise because you have to pay it back, right? Um, and, and we were cautious, but I think we also got carried away uh, with having so much... Like when you see your bank balance every day, you're like, oh, we have so much money. We can spend for six months and then cut, right? But that led to a lot of bad habits, right? Like we build a lot of levels of management. I, In hindsight, I'm not sure if we really needed to, all those layers. We had a lot of layers of management built in. We expanded too fast as a team. We went from, I think, uh, 40, 40, 45, 50 employees to like 130, 140, maybe 160, right? So expanded very quickly. Spent a lot of, uh, I think 30, 40% of the money on just like payroll. Uh Even though a lot of, and and, and we had a large sales team and we did not measure whether it was getting us the ROI we needed, right? So a lot of bad habits. And we went from like low burn, like, you know, 10, 15K of burn or 20K of burn to almost at a point, its peak was much higher, but it stabilized somewhere like 250K burn a month, right? So yeah, I mean, at its peak, I think it was even 500K at, at one point, right? So so you can imagine like how, you know, the habits suddenly going from culturally running a company a certain way to going the other extreme because of this. And like I said, I think, I think what did not work for us during this time is we try to change the DNA of the company, right? The whole thought process was if you've raised so much money, if we don't use it, we're paying interest. It's not helping us. How do we use this money to fast track our growth? We had run the company for six years in a certain manner. And suddenly changing that dynamic and culture of the company six years later, it's just not possible, right? Like you're setting up for either, like it, it either is absolutely going to work or everything's going to blow up. And that's just too risky. We had a lot to lo- lose in terms of the revenue we had, the customers we had. And that, that's not what you do as a leader and a CEO of the company, right? You don't want to do that. So, yeah, that's that that was a big learning.
0: In your case, it did end up going the wrong way, right? It kind of blew up. Yeah. How did you course correct
1: yeah, I mean, I think one fine day, you know, we were looking at the metrics and we realized we we're just burning a lot of money in all these departments. And this was a discussion between me and Mike. We we're burning money in all the departments. We just had a super large team and we were not sure if everything was giving us the ROI we needed. So, and we were also burning money. So we had two options. We continue doing the same thing and do more of this so that we had some metrics to show Tagore to is fun like a VC round to pay this, not only pay this debt, but also go raise a larger round. That was one option. And second one was just to cut, right? Like cut the spend and turn around. And we chose the second one because that's was was normal and how we thought about it. We just didn't want to go raise VC money with the gun on the head. It almost felt like that, right? We didn't want to, but we were forced to. So we basically said, this is not going to work. We have three to four months. We need to turn this around and, because if we drag this out too long, it's just going to be painful. So, yeah. And so I think this is the time, this is early, late 2017, early 2018. Jan, if I, if I get my timing right, Jan 2018 is where, you know, we realized we need to do this. We, I announced this to, you know, a large part of our team, both the, you know, uh, Folks who are leadership and middle management, so that we get buy-in and tell them transparently what needs to be done. We also realized this time, like you know, this was a shock to a lot of people. Uh, you know, some folks moved out uh, in in terms of like not wanting to sign up to make this change in the five months because it'll take a dramatically different way of executing. But I think the shining light for us was a lot of people from the middle management stepped up to the plate. They, you know, appreciated that we were honest about it and transparent of like what we wanted to get done and why. And today, uh, and and they actually helped in like sort of the turnaround in the, in the, in the next four, four months. Right. We couldn't have done that without all these folks stepping up. And today, most of these folks have sort of grown in the company. Most of them are still with us, right. Have grown the company to lead functions. And I think this is when we realized sort of, I think sharing uh, being brutally transparent with the team even if it's not good news, absolutely helps. Uh, just telling them why, and and you know, sort of telling them the business position you're in.
0: Wow, amazing story! I think now today you guys are at what around three hundred employees.
1: Yeah, yeah, we're three hundred plus.
0: You're profitable. Yeah, we're You've profitable. Been profitable for like six and a half years now. Yeah. Revenue of like somewhere between fifty and a hundred million dollars.
1: Yeah, yeah, between between that number uh, and yeah, our next milestone is to get to that hundred. We we think we can get there pretty soon. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I think I think uh, yeah, and from a scale perspective, like even with our hiring, we've been extremely frugal, if that's the right word, right? We've been we've been uh, not just from a cost perspective, but also benchmark, right? So for us, each hire is not an incremental hire, and I say this to my teams all day long. Right. It's not an incremental hire; it's an exponential hire, right? So we always look at that. You know how how can each hire be an ex- exponential hire? Because I think we've done a lot, and we continue to do a lot with you know just three hundred folks at the scale where we are from a revenue perspective. I think most companies I look at from where we are at a revenue standpoint, with peers and stuff, they're at least double, if not triple, from a, from a people perspective. So, but we want to be proud of like how we've built it lean. We want to keep it this way. We don't you know, pride ourselves in just numbers, either on fundraising or, you know, people numbers and stuff. We think all of these as vanity metrics.
0: And it's been such a, I mean, this is longer than I think most people spend building a company, right? Um, You're just sticking with it, right? A lot of people would look at these metrics, look at how big you've got, you guys have gotten with such a lean team. But in terms of revenue and profits, it's incredible. A lot of people would just say, hey, like, uh, Venky, why don't you why don't you like retire or like move on to something else? Or, you know, why are you still doing this? Like you must be tired, right? But it seems like you guys are going in the opposite direction. You're actually like growing even more and and you're sort of working on this entrepreneurship model, right? Where you're coming up with new products or new services within the company um, and spinning those out into, into sort of separate standalone businesses.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And And I mean, this is again, you know, chats we've had over time between Mike and I. And our thought process was, you know, what would get us out of our beds excited each day when we when we get to work? And like you said, it's been 12 years in the business. The business, the core business, which is the API business today, continues to grow. You know, like I said, the next milestone is 100 million. That's pretty much, I think, uh, you know, driven largely by our API business line. Our thought process was if we could take what we've learned over this time, like what's our strength, right? And what, what have we learned? We know how to build a profitable business at this scale and 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 continue to grow that so if you could take that and seed that into different ideas what we learned from yc right so like just type how yc seeds new companies and invests money in them if we could seed new ideas invest money in them till a certain point after which they are mandated to become profitable and then they run on their own right if we could figure this model out and In that model, obviously, there are two, three things we want to get right. One is you have to pick large markets. It's okay if there are multiple different players. You just need to figure out how do you differentiate, right? But pick large markets so each of them then can be, in in its own right, a $100 million revenue company or a product line or business unit, right? So that's how we think about it internally. So And and obviously, during COVID, it helped, you know, where we got in a lot of uh, prospects who were asking for during uh, initial March 2020, early, early March 2020. Uh, we solved for business communication for technology teams. We got in a lot of prospects coming for, you know, sales solutions, like packet SaaS solutions on for sales teams or support teams early COVID when you know there was people panicking about like what do we do about our communications, right? So that's when we realized, and we were not ready with any of that. We didn't have anything. So that's when we realized it'd be we're leaving opportunity on the table. So we said. How do you sort of now address those markets? And when we did our research, first principles, these are billion-dollar markets in in their own right, each of them, right? So we picked those markets, and we've you know one of our product lines is is Contacto, which is a, a contact center slash customer service platform for B2C companies, right? So so sort of business communications today, but moving into SaaS, right? So so that's what we've now started to do. We are you know seeding it with Plivo's money. And the mandate and, for them—it's
0: sort of an internal fund.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's an internal fund. We've—it's a completely different team. The entire team is org differently. It's a oh, different, wow. yeah. It's a different BU. The same team doesn't work on it, right? And and that team operates like a startup, right? And uh, their mandate is like the same startup milestone. So zero to ten customers first, like what we did with Plivo. Then uh, the next goal is from going from you know ten customers to hundred uh, k ACV or or ARR, call it that, right? And then the third milestone is to get to a million dollars. In, in ARR and then, you know, beyond, right? That's the journey, which is being profitable. So right now we've already achieved the 10 customers. Now, we, you know, I announced it to the team recently and now we're focused on getting to that 100K ARR milestone for that product line. And we're launching more. We're launching, you know, one for sales teams, which is cellular and, and more is coming. We want to plan one for marketing teams. So we want to take that entire landscape uh, in, in terms of all different functions within a company. How can we sort of be that partner for them uh, for business communications today, and over time, we don't want to stop there. Over time, we even want to get into just uh, outside of 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 that zone, right? And and in in all of that, you know, we're thinking how do we how do we structure this so that it's not just Mike and I doing this? You have to hire people who have that ownership mentality, right? Who uh, and if you look at most folks who've been successful at Plevo and are growing, are people who have either at some point wanted to do something on their own or have done something on their own and now want to be part of something, uh, you know, that gives them some comfort. So there is some cushion room, but they can still drive that balance of running it like their own baby.
0: That's so cool that you're sort of building startups within your, your company. Something else that I think people typically look at at this stage of the business is an exit, right? Either being acquired or going public. Doesn't seem like that's really something that you guys are looking at, though.
1: Tell me why. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, we've, again, I think, like I said, 2018 happened. We raised that debt round. And during during COVID, uh, you know, business grew. Business communications was everywhere. Business grew. We're getting a lot of incoming interest to raise money. We almost got tempted in, in all transparency. Almost got tempted. Luckily, we did not raise that money. And now, we're, like, we're seeing, you know, this turn where... Uh, you know, you sort of have the next 12 to 18 months of everything slowing down, right? In most economies, you know, US, India. uh, And I'm seeing companies that have gone public getting a, a big hit. So imagine waking up as a public company CEO every morning, looking into your stock and have to worry about, like, what do I tell my employees? Right? And then you have not just a problem of worrying about running the business and growing that, but also now having to build this narrative and keeping them motivated, right? So, I don't know if I want to run a company like that, right? Like I I, I I, would not be excited to get out of bed and run that company. So, and, and you know, Mike is very aligned with this. And like I said, we were lucky to not have, you know, raised money in, during COVID when we had a lot of incoming interest. So, so that's one piece of it, like why we don't want to go public. The second piece is, uh, you know, just first principles thinking, right? Like, so what do public companies do? Think, take Apple, right? It's the largest company in the world. What does Apple do? You know, they're public now you know, they they generate profits and cash every month and each quarter they buy back stock from the public markets. So if we can just figure out how to get liquidity, uh, you know, for our employees, like we do give ESOPs to everyone, right? So if we can figure out how to give liquidity, which why convolute the whole process by going public first and then have to buy back? Why cannot you just buy back ESOPs directly for employees? So that's one. And secondly, at some point, you know, buy back from our investors as well right, so that they get an exit and, and, and they can liquidate also. Uh, so, so that's how we think about it. And the only way we can do that is continuing to put cash in the bank, right? So that's a very important metric for us internally. We heavily focus on profitability. Uh, we talk about it openly. That's one of our metrics in our every all-hands calls. And uh, yeah, we want to improve that as we scale. Okay.
0: so Sort of a different tangent here uh, that I wanted to go down. The thing that everyone's talking about these days, of course, is AI, and I think a lot of SaaS companies in particular are sort of facing this existential threat because AI threatens to potentially create even better solutions than what they've built. Yeah. And it's way more automated and and less uh, human intensive, right? You don't need to have all these employees running this thing. You just get your AI to do it, right? Is Plevo one of those companies? I know you guys are more of like a platform as a service. You don't necessarily qualify as SaaS at this point because you've grown so much. Um, but is that something that you're looking at? Is that something you're worried about or- or not?
1: Yeah, I think every company should be worried about AI, right? Or, or everyone as well, right? Because most of the jobs, I think, will have a different way of getting them done with AI. So yeah, I mean, we think about it a lot. Um, I think especially after ChatGPT, things have taken a turn. So the way we look at, and we joke about this on our leadership calls, actually, is our core business, API business, right? Sometimes we say like, it's just voice calls and SMSs, But it's because it's just voice calls and SMSs and there's a physical layer to it behind the scenes with telcos and stuff, AI cannot come kill that business. Like there is something physically present that we've built over the last years. But even in that business, we're thinking internally on how do we optimize uh, using AI for, let's say, better sentiment analysis of what happens in the messages or in a better routing and so on and so forth. But more importantly, on the solution side, which is our new BUs or product lines we're launching the way we want to think about this is how can AI be our EV moment? Let, let me let me take a minute to explain what, what I mean by that, right? Is how can AI be our EV moment? Now, Tesla, when they came into the market, they had to compete with the ICE car makers, right? They did not have to build all the baggage that the ICE guys had. And they could focus on the disruptive faces, right? And that's how we want to think about you know, AI for our solutions business. So we've picked large markets, like contact centers existed for 50 years or 30 years, whatever, right? Sales engagement plat- platforms have existed for 20 years. And I'm sure marketing, whatever we do will exist there. So markets are large. So the problems would remain. But the way we want to think about this is like, what's our EV moment? So we don't have to go build everything that's been built before with all the baggage, but disrupt and create that leverage with AI. So So we are investing in it. You know we're we want to be on the on the front runner on on that piece, and the advantage we have is it doesn't matter whatever the old guys have done so far. We're on the same plane, plane or even ahead, having to start from scratch of where we are. So that's how we think about AI today.
0: That was Venki Balasubramanian, co-founder and CEO of Plivo. And by the way, when he's not busy building Plevo, he's actually working on something even bigger: solving India's homeless dog problem.
1: I'm sure you've played Super Mario, right? i'm sure we've all played super mario so in super mario you have these different levels right and i think plevo is somewhere level two or level three and level eight is is what i aspire towards i i uh, and and i'm if, if you've not heard of this concept it's called bag b-h-a-g big hairy audacious goal right and and i'd you know for for whoever's watching i'd encourage them to go research this online uh so for for me, like I have a set of bags and, and I can talk about it for, for a minute, is essentially, you know, I, I want to, I don't want to use the word end, but end homelessness uh, or homeless dogs on the streets, right? Starting with India. So so that's what I want to uh, solve for. And it's a super hard problem.
0: That is a, a bag. Yeah, that's huge.
1: Yeah, so I don't, I don't even know how to start solving that, right? It's a combination of operations and, but I think mostly medical research of you know having birth control that can be easily given like with food right without having to sort of take them to hospitals and stuff cuz that's just not going to work right every six months they have like nine other puppies right and it just goes on and on right so so i want to solve for that so now when you put things in perspective in that video game model if that's the bag which is getting the queen in super mario like plevo is just level 2 level 3 right
0: that's like beating bowser yeah yeah
1: <laughs> yeah exactly so so I mean even though there are challenges on a day-to-day basis when you put that in perspective this just becomes easy you know if like you cannot solve this how are you going to figure out what you need to get done to get the queen right so that's how i think about it and that's what you know sort of gets me motivated and long term like i said i want to solve for the bag which is a hard problem to solve
0: so i, I also have like two two dogs uh two indies so one of them uh, they're actually both from from Bengaluru. one of them was from Kalan park just little little dog 25 days old now she's very big and likes to bark a lot <laughs> the other sure. one is from Cuba you must have heard of Cuba yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have dogs
1: yeah i have i have two dogs or oh, i i had two dogs one passed away in 2020 guapo and bella mm. right um yeah i get a bit emotional talking about that but but i, I mean the other one senior she's 16 bella mm. and indies also i adopted them from the streets uh, yeah, and, and there is a story behind that. Uh, but but I work with a lot of these folks, uh, in, including Coupa uh, right now. And I mean, one of the short—it's not a bag, but a short-term thing, like which I feel is our strength, and I've, I've learned and built at Plea was how to run a profitable enterprise. I think if most of these folks who run shelters, running a shelter is hard, right? Because people just keep giving you dogs. And you need to figure out how to run
0: there's an infinite supply of dollars. yeah
1: and and you need to figure out how to raise money for it so i'm now working with about 10 or 12 shelters right where obviously you know i help them with whatever is possible financially but more importantly i'm trying to see if i can work with them and figure out a model where they can be self-sustaining and be profitable right because that's what you know i think is is my strength i bring to the table so if that can be done then we can just keep doing infinite shelters like our startups right? And and that's one thing, that's my short term, like in the next year or two, I want to figure that out.
0: Thank you so much for watching or listening to the show this week. And I'll catch you in the next one.